In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today our episode is going to be rough yeah. in a few different ways. Um, you could have probably predicted that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so d- despite doing an episode last week with a segment about mass shootings, we've had another horrific mass shooting, and so we're going to be dedicating a segment to that as well. Um, our second segment will focus on uh, it will be a sorry we fucked up your country segment about Iraq. And then finally, we will tackle um, a discussion of physician assisted suicide or euthanasia and kind of talk, try to break down, down that issue just as like an interesting, uh, you know, source of like, you know, it's just an interesting case of trying to balance individual autonomy with like the state's like interest in preserving people's uh, lives. Yeah. I can't say that I'm excited for this episode. I will say that a lot of the day I've kind of been dreading talking about the massacre of, at this point, 19 children. Yeah. So before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and do something a little bit less depressing. Let's talk about the COVID numbers. Yeah. All right. So worldwide at this point, we've hit 529 million cases which is up from 525 million last week. So that's 4 million new cases in a week or about 571,000 new cases per day, which is actually down 34% from the week before. We've hit 6.30 million deaths this week, which is up from 6.29 million last week. So that's 10,000 more deaths in a week, which is pretty much the same as the week before. Um, Vaccination rate worldwide is flat week over week at 67.4%. Uh, in the U.S., we've hit 85.30 million cases, which is up from 84.55 million the week before. So that's 750,000 new cases in a week or about 107,000 new cases per day. So that's a 20% increase uh, over the week before. Uh, In terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 1.029 million deaths, which is up from 1.027 million the week before. So that's 2,000 new deaths in a week, or about 286 deaths per day, which is the same as the week before. And in terms of vaccination rate, we're exactly where we were last week. So pretty much the same place we were last week, which was pretty similar to the week before. We've seen the growth in cases, but not really a growth in daily deaths, um, and vaccination rate sticks about where it was. So less depressing. Kind of. We kind of reached this, like, steady state, it seems. Yeah. Well, hey, look on the bright side. At least we might be more worried about monkeypox soon than we are about COVID. (laughs) I know. I don't know. I, I'm i not too worried about monkeypox. Yeah. Well, well, we have an 85% effective vaccine for that already. True. But still, it's it's, yeah. it's one of those, it's one of those things 
where I just feel like that would happen right now. I mean, with all uh, of the terrible shit that's happening in the world, why not just throw monkeypox into the mix? I didn't even know, <laughs> know that was a thing. No, neither did I. <laughs> neither did I. But hopefully, I mean, to be fair, like, I don't know. We've had so many, like, disease scares before, but only once in the last hundred years and then once in the hundred years before that have we had, like, a pandemic of this scale. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's, it is, but the thing is, COVID has obviously killed, you know, millions of people. It's fucking terrible. Needless death. It's horrible. Um, lots of death could have been avoided, but in some ways it's like, we may not have done everything perfectly, but at least we like did something. Yeah. And that. I guess brings us to our first segment. Yeah. So on Tuesday afternoon, an 18 year old in, uh, Uvalde, Texas went into a school and murdered 19 kids and two adults, including a teacher. Um, apparently this gunman had shot his grandmother just before and then, and crashed his vehicle near the school and then got out uh, with a rifle uh, packed in body armor and a backpack um, and fired hundreds of rounds in the school. He overpowered the police officer stationed at the school, um, was eventually uh, killed by law enforcement, who in this case was primarily the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, which was the largest law enforcement group in the area because of its proximity to uh, the Mexico border. Um, yeah, he entered, he, uh, was in a firefight with the agents. A couple of agents were shot, but not, uh, critically and none of the agents died. Um, and then he was shot and killed. Um, yeah. According to the governor, um, the shooter had no prior history of crime or mental illness. So there goes that scapegoat. Yep. And he had recently purchased two semi-automatic rifles prior to the shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, legally. Legally. Because in, in Texas, uh, you can legally purchase a semi-automatic weapon uh, at the age of 18. For some states, it's 21. In Texas, 18. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a lot to say about this. There's definitely a lot to talk about with this, but... Before we get into that, let's just just very, very briefly just address the emotional impact of a story like this. This is the most deadly school shooting since Sandy Hook. All right. There were 19 children, elementary school children, my niece's age that lost their lives. There was, I I was, I was reading this article. There were, there was this one classroom where there were these, there, there was, uh, this, this guy's nephew was in the class. And, uh, this guy told the associated press that his nephew told him that they were just 
they were sitting in a classroom because it was just a few days before the end of school and they were just they were watching moana mm. when they started hearing gunshots and they saw the shooter through the window just walk by the door and the teacher who was uh you know who was watching them was like oh my god he's got a gun i mean this is not something i mean i i know it sounds obvious but this is not something that should happen i mean yeah. that seems like the most obvious thing in the world to say but this is this yeah. is just this is unthinkable this should be yeah. unthinkable and i mean this always hits home for me cuz i'm a teacher i work mm -hmm. in a school I live two hours from Virginia Tech. And in fact, I live only 10 minutes from another school where there was a school shooting just this year. Yeah. And I remember one time when I was, I was working as an adjunct at George Mason University, there was actually a false alarm, but we got alerts on our phones that basically said there is someone with a weapon on campus right now. And that was during this orientation with a bunch of other teachers. And we, we barricaded the doors. We put quarters in the doors because the lock wouldn't work. And yeah. like for 15 minutes, we thought that there was a shooter on campus. Now there wasn't, it was a false alarm, but I, I was texting my wife. I was texting my parents and look, I, I dread the day that I'm going to be teaching a class and I'm going to get an alert on my phone that says basically shooter on campus and I'm going to need to barricade my classroom and, and text my wife. And, and unfortunately yeah. this happens often enough in America that a fear like that really is warranted. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, you're right. It seems obvious to say this, but this should never ever happen. And yet, this isn't even like the first one this year. There have been 39 shootings in K through 12 or at a college or university so far in 2022. Yeah. Like, that was, that was before this most recent shooting. This is, I think, the 40th. Like, before this shooting... 10 people in school shootings have been killed and 51 injured. And then nearly twice that for this one shooting. Last year, 249 shootings occurred on school grounds, which was the most since 1970. It's mind-blowing. Sandy Hook, in 2012, 26 people dead, including... 20 children between the ages of six and seven years old. 2012. It's been just about 3,500 days since that shooting. And on average, we've had one mass shooting for every one of those days. It's been 8,436 days since 12 students and one teacher were killed in Columbine. Since then, 311,000 students 
have experienced gun violence at school, according to the Washington Post. 37 students facing gun violence at school per day since 1999. Yeah. And like... And look, there is often a lot of discussion after mass shootings about what the solution is. And the thing is, the thing that we constantly hear from the right is now is not the time to talk about gun control or new gun laws. That's what they always say. Now is not the time to talk about it. But then of course, when, when discussion winds down, they don't want to have that conversation either. Yeah. And look, I, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you, you know, I'm a moderate on the issue of guns, right? I, I, I am a moderate on the issue of guns. I, I have concerns over individual rights, and I also have concerns over the fact that, um, that in just 2011 alone, over 685,000 people were stopped and frisked in New York. Yeah. Nine out of 10 of them were completely innocent. And the primary justification of stop of stop of the stop and frisk policy under the Bloomberg administration in New York, and this is just in New York, was to find drugs, to find contraband, to find weapons. Mm-hmm. So I do have concerns that having strict laws against possession for average citizens is only going to give police officers another reason to harass people of color. And historically Mm -hmm. it has done that. Yeah. However, the answer cannot be nothing. And the answer can absolutely not be to shut down conversations. I mean, look, I might not necessarily agree with an assault weapons ban, but we should absolutely be having a conversation about it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And, and ultimately we have to answer some of these questions, right? Like, like we have to figure out what effective solutions are. I think we know a lot of them. We've got hypotheses about a lot of them. And, and I think a lot of them are pretty fairly uncontroversial. Yeah. Um, at least among the general public, (laughs) at least among the public. That's the thing. But, and, and yet like I was struck, I was reading articles and every single article ended the exact same way. Like flags at half mast. Yeah. A quote about hearts going out to teachers and parents. Yeah. A quote about prayers for the victims and their families. A quote about pleas for things to be done. A claim that this was a, sen- a senseless act of violence, implying that there was really nothing we could have done to prevent it. And then nothing else. Yeah. And look. One of the things I want to talk about is the idea of universal background checks. Now, this particular guy did not have a history of mental illness or crimes, so a background yeah. check would not have stopped this sh- particular shooting. Yeah. But it's still an important policy to talk about. First off, according to Gallup, um, 92% of Americans favor requiring background checks for all gun sales. Yeah. 92%. It's crazy. Like, the issue of guns is a controversial issue, but the fact that 
But universal background checks is just not. It's I mean, not. the NRA is against it for some yeah. reason. Yeah. But it's just like, and the argument that they keep saying is like, oh, give an inch and they'll take a mile. But look, 22% of U.S. gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check. And that is according yeah. to Giffords.org, the Giffords Law Center. All right? 22%. 45% of online gun buyers are able to buy their guns without a background check. Can we pause? Why Why are there online gun buyers? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, why... <laughs> That I don't get. <laughs> yeah. I mean like I mean that's yeah. that that I mean that that's one thing that you have to like Gunvana, we want to buy your gun. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> yeah. A maker of gun vending machines. Like <laughs> we don't that's not a problem we need to to, to solve. And the issue with that is the fact that this means that people who have a prior history of domestic violence, which yeah. by the way, is a huge predictor of uh, of potentially being a mass shooter. People mm -hmm. that have pri a prior history of court orders, people who have been convicted of violent crimes, you know, people who are otherwise ineligible yeah. to, to to purchase a gun, can still purchase a gun. And again, twenty two percent of U.S. gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check. Yeah. And and that's the thing. And like the other thing about that is that that twenty two percent is is like times when it wasn't even like attempted. You know, they didn't check at all. Yeah. But there's also flaws in our background check data. Yeah. There's a lot of organizations, the mil the U.S. military is one of them that don't accurately report on the risk factors that would would prevent someone from buying a gun should a background check check actually be uh be conducted. Yeah. This this particular error has been a component of people like people that have gone on to do mass shootings acquiring guns in the past. Yeah. And and but the background checks are so effective according yeah. to uh Garen Midemut who has been studying gun violence for 30 years and uh, is the director of UC Davis's violence prevention research program has um, from studying this issue found that using background checks to prevent persons from acquiring firearms associate is associated with a 25% reduction in the incidence of arrests for firearm related or other violent crimes. Yeah. I actually, I actually have a personal anecdote here. Um, when I, when I went to go buy my handgun, uh, I did it at this uh, at this gun show in uh, Northern Virginia, which, you know, you, a lot of side note, a lot of you have probably heard of the idea of the gun show loophole. So basically, the gun show loophole is based on the fact that under federal law, all licensed weapons dealers have to do background checks, but unlicensed weapon de weapons dealers do not have to do them, which, again, that's why... 22% of U.S. gun owners are able to acquire their firearms without a background check because in a lot of states, they haven't closed loopholes related to um, re related to background checks 
Uh, and the major loophole being the fact that if you are not a licensed gun dealer, you don't have to do it, which makes no fucking sense to me. But whatever. I know if anyway. you're less qualified to sell guns, you have to take fewer precautions. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, the the actual person that I purchased my handgun from, we were, we were talking to her while she was doing the background check on me. And she was talking about how just that day someone had come in to try to purchase a gun from her. She did a background check and found out they were a fugitive. This person was a fugitive. And so like, you know, they kind of slipped, slipped away, called the police really quickly and ended up and they, they picked the person up. But imagine if they didn't have that background check, a fugitive would have been able to purchase a handgun and just yeah. walk right out. But yeah. because of that background check, not only did they, were they able to prevent the person from purchasing the gun, they were able to catch the person. Yeah. So look, Background checks are not the end-all, be-all, but they're a huge, important step, and they should be considered so uncontroversial because they yeah. are uncontroversial. Over 90% of Americans support this. That's the thing. And Why wouldn't you? As the party yeah. of law and order, why wouldn't you support preventing people that shouldn't, that shouldn't be allowed to have guns from having guns? Like, yeah. I'm not a law and order party guy, but like that seems like a perfectly yeah. Republican stance <laughs> to have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I and that's that's but that's the thing about common sense gun reform is that like a lot of those specific policies are widely popular, yeah, very obvious and common sense, and while they wouldn't be the end all be all, they would prevent gun deaths yeah and likely prevent shootings yeah you know a few other public opinion polls on uh um on the support of um other measures with regard to gun control and by the way i'm not necessarily saying that i agree with all of these but mm -hmm. this is where the public is at uh banning the sale of semi-automatic weapons um 56 percent favor Raising the legal age at which people can purchase certain firearms from 18 to 21. By the way, the guy that did this shooting was 18. Yeah. 68% support. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, instituting new programs to, uh, to identify, assess, and manage certain students who may, possess a who may pose a threat. 86%. Mm. 86%. Yeah. All right. There's... There are things that we can do. Yeah. There it's are basic. Yeah. Identify people that would be at higher risk of causing gun violence and prevent them from having a gun. Yeah. And look, I, I mean, I don't know how I feel personally on a, on a, like on a principle level about raising the legal age from 18 to 21. Cause I, you know, I, I do on most things. I think that we should treat 18 as an adult. If, if a person, if we're going to say that 18 is when you become an adult, make it that way for everything. But I mean, it is overwhelming support and it would have prevented this guy from getting his gun. Yeah. And a number of mass shootings that are like perpetrated by adolescents. Yeah. It, but yeah, it would have actually, it would have actually done something. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. So the other, another thing that the, another like policy recommended by the researcher I mentioned earlier, earlier um garen widemut um is a policy that would 
um, allow courts to have firearms removed temporarily from people who pose an imminent hazard or threat to themselves or others. Um, but maybe not be a member of a prohibited class, like people that have, um, you know, like felons or something like that. Yeah. And all you're doing, because like the the driver of so much gun violence is a coincidence of a state of mind and a gun. Yeah. That's it. It's yeah. like a current mood and the presence of a gun. Yeah. And so if you're able to identify someone who is at a higher risk of having like of being in that mental state and able to remove the gun, it can have just a huge impact. Yeah. And look, if, if you're going to do that, you need, you, you do still need to make sure that you're going through proper due process. Yeah. Right? And the States that have things like this, you can get like a very in short, you can get like a very quick process via the court um, that like doesn't have an opportunity to, for like defense, but it can, it can, at a maximum last, I think three weeks and you can have no extension without like an actual like opportunity for extensive due process. And like, to me, like, I mean, I don't know about the whole no opportunity for defense part of that. Well, it's, it's an emergency measure. Some some iteration of that I think does make sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an emergency measure. Like, I think there are other, like, similar emergency measures where you do have to prove a certain level of information. Yeah. It's just that it's not, like, a practical matter of, yeah. you know, like a restraining order. Like, a person yeah. who's going to be restrained by a restraining order doesn't have an opportunity for defense if it's an emergency. That makes sense. That that actually does make sense. Yeah. But, yeah. the thing The thing is, like, there are some things we know. Like, the correlation between gun violence and mass shootings and guns is clear. Like it's not a radical statement that guns are highly correlated with gun violence. (laughs) And the thing is like the U S just has way more guns and gun violence per capita than other countries, like literally twice the rate of gun violence of Yemen, (laughs) a country at war. Yeah. Like, but the thing is, we have similar levels of overall crime to other countries. So that means that it's a gun problem, not a crime problem. And states and counties and, and countries in the U.S. that have, rest- or, or around the world that have restrictions on guns have less gun violence. So at least we have the correlation that restrictions may work. And states and countries with more guns overall have more gun violence. And again, all of these are correlative. And all they indicate is that we have a problem that is uniquely, that is uniquely bad in the U.S. And shooting after shooting after shooting on top of high rates of suicide by gun like on top of all the other things we've talked about on this show indicate that like we have got to figure out something whether it's common sense or not like we have to i implement policy and and yes maybe we have to study policy like maybe we have to learn what the best strategy would be 
Like maybe it's a matter of an interim policy to figure out where, like to help stop the death while we figure out what the perfect policy would be. But the fact is that until recently, we weren't even allowed to study the issue. Which that's actually something interesting that I wanted to bring up because this is something that I did not know until recently. And I'm, I'm wondering if the reason why this happened kind of hush hush was on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, but so I know that we've talked about this before, like way at the beginning of the pod, I remember us doing a segment in which we talked about the Dickey amendment. Yeah. Uh, so, so the Dickey amendment was basically, um, a policy implemented by the federal government that made it so that, uh, federal funds could not be used to advocate or promote gun control. Now, the way that that has been interpreted for most of the last 20 years has been basically the Center for Disease Control cannot have any role in any type of research into gun violence. Basically, yeah. if you research gun violence, that counts as promoting gun control uh, and or promoting a ban. <laughs> now, that was actually recently changed by a progressive crusader, Donald Trump. <laughs> so, I, again, and I found this out recently, but apparently after the Parkland shooting, there was an ominous bill signed by President Donald Trump that it didn't, it didn't repeal the Dickey Amendment, but what it did was it clarified that the Dickey Amendment does not apply to research, right? Basically, it had previously been interpreted that research into gun violence was the same as advocating for gun control. And Donald Trump signed a bill that said, no, it doesn't. And he did that in the wake of the Parkland shooting. So we now have four good things that, that come out of the, the Trump administration. And I honestly, when I started researching for this segment, I really did not think that I would be giving Trump credit for something, but credit yeah. where credit is due. It was fucking stupid that the CDC could not use federal funds in order to study gun violence, especially considering the fact that we do have a unique issue. And the argument that I had made was basically, if you are somebody who believes that the 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 solution to gun violence is not more gun control then you would think that you'd want there to be more research because if you believe yeah. that then the research should back that up yeah it's such a tell it's yeah. such a tell that researching gun violence was interpreted as being the same as advocating for gun control yeah <laughs> i mean that's I mean, that's some Dershowitz bag level telling on yourself. Exactly. That is literally saying if people found out how much gun control could limit gun violence, they would be convinced that we should have gun control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but the weird, the crazy thing to me is so like, okay, so support for gun ownership is very high in the U.S. and has been going up throughout the 2000s. So from 2000... Yeah to 2017 support for gun ownership went from 29% to 47%. Yeah. But interestingly, even Republicans who tend to be the most staunch 
supporters of the protection of absolute, like, strict firearm ownership support common sense gun controls. Yeah. So that means that, like, as I, as I interpret that, to me, that means that people, when people reject, what, pe- what, what Republicans reject is not specific gun control policies, because a lot of them are broadly popular, even among Republicans. Um, so literally those specific policies which could make us safer are not the things that Republicans are rejecting. What they, what the backlash is about is the notion that they're coming for our guns, which is purely a boogeyman manufactured by the NRA. Yeah. It is just a way of scaring like gun rights activists into opposing all gun legislation by pretending that all gun legislation is means they're coming for your guns. And it's a false, it's a false dichotomy. It is, it is. And so to me, it's, it's like amazingly glaring and so clear that like NRA and, and gun lobbying in convincing people that any restriction must mean that like they're coming for your guns is like directly responsible for the fact that we don't have even the most basic federal solutions for this problem. Yeah. And another thing that I think is important to address, another another thing that I think is it should be considered an acceptable compromise between people that do prioritize gun rights and, and gun ownership and people that want more gun control and want to use gun control in order to prevent mass shootings. And that's limiting magazine capacities on a federal level. Yeah, the sure. guy that the guy that committed the most recent shooting bought 375 rounds of ammunition. Hmm. All right. Now imagine, I mean, imagine how much less damage would have been committed if, you know, maybe he only had um, the ability to, if, if, if like he only had like 10 round magazines. Yeah. Now there would still have been damage, obviously. Yeah. But the thing is, the, the thing that, you know, people that advocate for gun control argue is basically that when you have somebody who is, who has evil intentions and you factor into that equation the ability to do a significant amount of damage that equals a mass shooting. So do everything you can to limit that that ability to do that damage. Because as, as Michael talked about earlier, crime rates between the United States and other countries are, are similar. All right? Yeah. Which means that if we take away a certain level of... Um, of the ability for for criminals to do damage, yeah, then you end up preventing a lot of death. Yeah, and I I don't see I, yeah. how that. I mean, me as a gun owner, I don't see how that's unreasonable at all. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's such a strong point. It's like so proved out in literally the three mass shootings that have occurred over the past week, ten days. In Buffalo, he was able to kill 10 people in the two minutes that it took police to respond. That is not about 
Like that is about how effective this person is about at killing. Yeah. Right. Like this mass shooter fired in Texas killed a, a, a staggering number of people. 21 people are dead. At the same time, he fired hundreds of rounds. Hundreds. So, not a marksman. Yeah. But contrast that to the Laguna shooter, the Laguna Woods church shooter, just in the same time period. He was armed with two handguns. With normal magazines. And the difference in death is obvious. Yeah. One person. A tragedy for sure. But in a church where the average age was 80 years old, he was able to kill a single person. Yeah. And I would argue that is largely because he wasn't in a fucking bulletproof vest and he didn't have a fucking semi-automatic rifle. And now it's time for what would usually be a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week so that we can randomly say the lyrics of a song. But considering the content of this week's Tips for Good, maybe we could suspend that for just this week. We're still going to do it. We're still going to keep doing it, even though it's really stupid. But for this week, we're just going to go ahead and suspend it. Makes sense. Because Tips for Good is all about making the world a better place. Yeah. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? So our tip for good this week is when we're talking about these mass shootings, these killers, let's avoid saying the murderer's names. Now, that might sound weird, but there's reason behind it. Which is like when the media and, you know, with a podcast like ours, we're part of, you know, the media um, focuses on the shooters in these cases. They talk about them. They dive into their lives. They're on the news all the time. They talk about their motives. The effect for certain people in the audience can be interpreted as lionizing these people or bringing or or making them famous which can encourage copy copycat behavior mm. it's similar to cases of suicide in communities where focus on um the person who has committed suicide can cause often other like teenagers or something to view that as a way to gain recognition and attention and it can lead to in some communities like a contagion of teen suicide so similar to that like we should focus on solving the issues we should focus on the victims the families it's fine to like understand the motives of the killer but like when we focus on them when we say their name when we show images of them it's not particularly responsible and it just contributes to, you know, making a higher risk that something like this might happen again. Yeah. And 
we did it last week. Yeah. And you might have noticed that we very specifically did not do it this week. So yeah. from now on, we're we're going to try to avoid saying the names of these shooters yeah. because we're not going to be part of spreading their fame. Can we pause on some this like something so sad? Hmm. You said from now on. Yeah. Because we know that we're going to be here again soon. Yeah. And that's tips for good. So, Michael, last week mm. I was sitting at my computer yeah. and I kept seeing all of these news articles mm -hmm. randomly pop up saying something along the lines of former President George W. Bush is back in the news with a new Freudian slip. Wow. What is this? 2003? Yeah, exactly. Because like <laughs> he was kind of very famous for, for Freudian slips. Uh, he was also incredibly famous for just saying a lot of stupid shit that came off the top <laughs> of his head. But this right here has got to be the Freudian slip of all Freudian slips. His crowning achievement. The crowning achievement. <laughs> so he was giving a speech about the invasion of Ukraine, which automatically, like, I, I I listened to the, I started watching the thing and I'm hearing him talking about Ukraine. And he's talking about how the biggest problem is the lack of checks and balances on Russia, all right, which gives one person too much power. And I'm just thinking, hmm, really? You're saying that uh, one person? That's a, that's a lesson you learned per <laughs> personally, huh? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, um, he kind of admitted it <laughs> like he, or he, he kind of admitted that he is just as bad as Vladimir Putin. So, so he said, quote, an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch, launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. Uh, I mean, Ukraine, and then under his breath, he said, Iraq too. <laughs> oh my God. He admitted it. <laughs> the, the, when I, when I, so my first thought was, oh my God, he admitted it. My second thought was, I was like, wait, does he think that Putin has evaded Iraq? It's like, nah, no. <laughs> he just knows. Yeah. He knows. Guilty. I, I, I wonder if that's, if some of that might be guilty conscience. I'm, or some of that might just be like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the guy's 75 at this point. You know, maybe some of his past decisions are coming back to haunt him. But I thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to do another edition of Sorry We Fucked Up Your Country. This time, Iraq edition. Because if you've, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you've probably heard that the Iraq war was probably like makes up about 30% of my early political development. <laughs> um, and the Iraq war is also, is always something that I've been extremely passionate about, or at least passionately against. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a good idea for us to sit down and really go over the history of Iraq. Not just talking yeah. about the Iraq war under W, but also just 
the longer history yeah. of all of the U.S. and Western influence in Iraq and how that has completely fucked up the country. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I, I that's why I love this segment. Because, you know, when the when issues in these countries are framed in modern terms, right? They seem intractable. Yeah. The issues seem impossible. How do you make such a difficult decision between multiple terrible choices? Yeah. Poor George W. having to choose between evading Iraq and overthrowing Saddam Hussein uh, and American security. Like that, that sucks. But when you look further back into history, the themes that happen again and again and again is that this intractable situation wasn't inevitable. Yeah. They continue to the result from the same kinds of activities and interests and interventions that leads to instability, despotism and military authoritarianism, uh, and inevitably leads to human rights violations and American U.S. interventionism. Like, yeah. it's just, it's like a pattern. You could, you could make a quilt out of this pattern. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's so common. Yeah. So, um, to start out, let's talk about how Iraq became a country. Mm. So, if you know anything about Middle Eastern history, um, you probably already know the answer to this, which is basically that around the time of World War One, World War Two, between that time period, uh, a bunch of Europeans just went into the Middle East and drew a bunch of lines everywhere. Yeah. And then gave it all to Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So initially, uh, Britain had created Iraq as a country and tried to install a monarchy that was specifically friendly to the United States interests. Now, theme one. <laughs> yeah, theme one. Well, not just the United States, but Western yeah, interests. Yep. Like at the time, because this was Britain, all right? There was specifically, uh, there was specifically friendly to Western interests. And a huge part of that is the fact that they had a, they had a large amount of oil. I mean, yeah. the area that, uh, that is now called Iraq used to be referred to as Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. also known as the Fertile Crescent. Yeah. So basically, they wanted access, U.S. corporations wanted access to Mesopotamia um, for their oil. And in fact, in 1928, uh, U.S. corporations had a 23.7% share in the Iraq Petroleum Company, IPC. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that right there, basically, I mean, if you want to ask why we've been so interested in Iraq, that that's it. Just right yeah. there. That's it. <laughs> that's theme number two. Yeah. Oil. <laughs> Is that where there's money, especially rich natural resources, focuses Western colonial intervention and control. Yeah. So there was a monarchy established in Iraq, and eventually this was overthrown by an Iraqi revolution in 1958. 
Mm-hmm. So they had been trying to basically create this stable government. Government now again, they weren't trying to create a democracy. They weren't trying to create human rights. They were just trying to install a monarch that was friendly to the to Western interests, friendly to the United States, friendly to Britain, yeah. right? And after that government was overthrown, because of course it was, because when you have a foreign occupying force or a or at least a a a figurehead that is controlled by foreign powers in a government history shows again and again that the populist is not going to accept that for very long yeah especially in a place like iraq iran like similar stories in like uh in in like Africa, it's like when you go in arbitrarily do, uh, divide up lines, combine a bunch of different ethnicities with long histories of yeah. you know interaction or tension and ebbing and flowing of their relations, and then yeah. you put them in a country. You give you typically give one ethnic one of the ethnic minorities some kind of like governing control over the others, and you say. It's because it, you know, do as I say because I'm the West and I have military power. Like you're just setting yourself up, yeah, for failure. Yeah, I mean, you had a Kurdish population that resisted the authority of um, the the Arabic government within the Arabic communities. You had Sunni Muslims. You mm-hmm. had Shia Muslims. Um, that were all a part of the same country that they were, yeah. were was supposed to just be like they were all supposed to just um get along yeah but uh, it, it to the us's credit in 1958 when the monarchy was overthrown in a surprising exercise of restraint they did not intervene yeah <laughs> the last time they showed restraint <laughs> yeah um and but unfortunately, the instability that had been brewing from the, the years of which that monarchy exist, existed mm-hmm. led to several decades of massive instability in Iraq. Yeah. The first revolution, as we talked about, was in 1958. There was another one in 1963. There was another one in 1968. And then there was another one in 1979. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, all of this is uh, according to, um, to osu.edu. Mm-hmm. There had been several revolutions. And what's interesting is that the way that the United States kind of handled this time period was, for the most part, peripheral. Yeah. Um, now, they did have uh, they did have some peripheral support for certain groups that kind of shifted over time because the primary thing that they wanted to try to do, was to try to prevent communism from spreading into Iraq. Like it was mm-hmm. the it was the it was the it was strategy. During the Cold War. Yeah, it was during the Cold War. So for a while, um, they were actually actively trying to advocate against the Kurds, who at the time were being supported by the Soviets. But then after 1967, when Iraq formally severed diplomatic relations to the United States specifically because of the United States' involvement with Israel, um, the, uh, the, the government that had been established nationalized the U.S. petroleum interests and also partnered with 
the Soviet Union. Mm. And then the United States kind of switched sides and started supporting Kurdish rebels against yep. the against the government because then they because they were then fighting against the Iraqi government. Yeah. So again, long period of instability. And mm. what's interesting is that that instability actually ended with Saddam Hussein. Now, Saddam Hussein had a massive has a massive record of criminal rights of of human rights abuses. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, he was propped up by the United States. But, you know, before we get into that, let's just acknowledge the fact that the periods of instability in Iraq did end with him going into power, which happened in 1979. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there are significant benefits to being a despot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Stability and security can be one of them. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that's worth it. Nope. I don't think that's worth it. Yeah. But you know, when he did seize power, um, because of all of his brutal suppression of political rivals, because of his, you know, a complete disinterest in safeguarding human rights, Mm -hmm. he did end up creating stability for the country. Now that fact right there is a huge part of why president Ronald Reagan started to get himself involved in a conflict between Iraq and Iran during his presidency. Mm -hmm. So, so after, after Saddam Hussein had been in power for a little bit, there was a massive war that was launched with Iran. So he had actually ordered a full-scale invasion of Iran. And for years, this had basically been a stalemate. Now, under the Jimmy Carter administration, they had basically maintained a practice of neutrality. Under yeah. the Reagan administration, they started getting involved with Iraq, which meant that what they were doing was they were trying to um, support him financially, specifically Saddam Hussein. They were trying to support him financially. They were trying to support him in some ways, uh, in some cases, even militarily. Yeah. In his attack, in in his war against Iran, and partially that was because we had this growing uh, movement of Islamic fundamentalism led by the Ayatollah in Iran, that was you know that was developed out of a similar like anti-Western backlash uh, on the back of, you know, colonialism, but was very spooky to U.S. interests. Yeah. Well, and a huge reason why they hated us so much is because we had overthrown their democratically elected reformer candidate who wanted to nationalize oil in Iran, sound familiar, Mm -hmm. and then installed the Shah, who then got overthrown and installed with a government that hated the United States. Yeah. Because so of course they did. Because the we same fucking with them. theme. The same, the f- fucking, same theme. fucking theme. U.S. Again. intervention <laughs> causing a rise of extremism that takes many different forms. It can take national, the form of nationalism. It can take the yeah. form of socialism, communism. In this ta- in this case, it was Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. So. So basically, we had we we spent the next several years propping up. Um, Saddam Hussein because he was giving us access to oil in exchange for us helping him in the fight against Iran. 
after the conflict with Iran ended, though, there started to be um, there started to be some tensions between the United States and yeah. the Hussein regime. Let's let's point out though these tensions were not over his continued pattern of aggressive human rights abuses. Oh no, they didn't give a fuck about that. <laughs> those were not part of the worry set yeah. for that now, caused tension. What's interesting is those were used later yeah. in order to try to shift the public opinion on Against Saddam Hussein. Hussein. Yeah. But while we were supporting him, while we were helping to prop him up, while we were giving him financial aid and military aid, we were willfully ignoring his massive human rights abuses, his massive record of human rights abuses. And then the moment he starts doing something that we didn't want him to do, which again was not human rights abuses, it was actually invading Kuwait. That's when we started to step in. That's when we started to tell the world, oh, this guy's a bad guy. So another thing that we've seen before, we... We basically have this idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the enemy of my enemy also has oil and I like oil. So I'm going to help to prop up this person, support them financially, legitimize them on the international stage. And then I have given power to a crazy person, to a terrible human being, to a, to a despot. And now I'm surprised when they turn around and start doing even worse shit. In this yeah. case, it was evading, invading Kuwait. Mm -hmm. All right. So basically, there was a military clash that started um, in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, Iraq-Iran war. And... Saddam Hussein wanted to try to make up for some of the losses, and the way he decided to do it was by invading Kuwait. I love that. You know, I love that. It's like we were just in a war. It cost us, you know, in total between Iraq and Iran, a, a nearly a million casualties. You know, we're, we're feeling the strain. You know what we should do? Another war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, because that's the type of person who Saddam Hussein was. Yeah. And again, we helped to prop him up. Yeah. We supported him. And Kuwait was an attractive target. Independent, small, full of oil. Yeah. Which is also why the US didn't want Saddam Hussein controlling it, in addition to worries that he might try to push further into Saudi Arabia, another uh region that the US did not want Iraq to and Hussein to have control over. Yeah. So prior to the actual invasion, um there was there was pressure mounting where Saddam Hussein was basically saying, yes, I'm, I'm definitely going to be invading Kuwait. George W. Bush, or George H. W. Bush, rather, um, was basically trying to use the relationship that they had established in the 80s in order to try to encourage, uh, in order to try to encourage Hussein to, like, to, to, to back down, to stay where he mm -hmm. is. Because apparently they thought that a guy that was an authoritarian who cracked down on political opponents was going to act rationally and not immediately turn against them. Yeah. So he ended up moving, Hussein ended up moving 100,000 troops to the Kuwait border. And there was a full-scale military invasion in August of 1990. 
And so Bush responded by um, first by what's referred to as Operation Desert Shield, where he put American troops in Saudi Arabia to try to prevent the expansion. But then he launched Desert Storm, which a lot of you have probably heard of. And that was when they sent troops directly into Kuwait in order to push Iraq out of it. Now, this right here is where I think it gets kind of interesting, but also kind of ironic considering what happened later, Mm -hmm. which is that once he pushed the troops out of Kuwait, he made what was at the time considered a controversial decision to stop right there, to not invade Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I just want to go ahead and I just want to go ahead and read to you what uh, the so basically almost everything that I'm talking about comes from the osu.edu website. The thing that um, that George H. W. Bush was concerned about was that if he tried to march to Baghdad, it would fragment international alliances, it would exceed the mandate authorized by the United Nations, it would incur unacceptable. U.S. casualties, and it would lead to a costly, prolonged occupation. Hmm. Hmm. It's amazing foresight. That is some really amazing foresight. I wish he also if that uh, was like hereditary. I yeah. Well, I wish he had. I don't know. Said that to his son once or twice. <laughs> I mean, teenagers always rebel. You know, they never listen. <laughs> Oh, Dad, yeah? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna sh- invade Iraq, and you yeah. are too much of a pansy to do that. I'm going to the party. I'm gonna smoke cigarettes. I'm gonna invade Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, so yeah, another another uncharacteristic level of restraint from yeah. the U.S. That but again, particularly well. <laughs> let's not forget. And again, I I know that that makes George H. W. Bush sound, you know. Not too terrible, but again, let's not forget that he was Ronald Reagan's vice president while Ronald Reagan was helping to prop Saddam Hussein up, was helping to uh, legitimize Saddam Hussein's regime and was economically helping Saddam Hussein's regime. So maybe Bush isn't as bad, Yeah, but I mean... you know, Or maybe you could even argue that he's, he's just as bad and the only reason why he shifted is because like he realized he couldn't control Saddam Hussein, but still, mm-hmm. yeah, he's not, he's not innocent in this. So after yeah. this, they did a, uh, the, the United States started to move towards a different sort of strategy, um, of containment against Iraq. Basically mm-hmm. the idea was establish no fly zones in order to try to prevent, uh, airstrikes, use, uh, economic sanctions in order to prevent, Iraq from being able to expand, from it being practical for them to expand, and basically just make it clear, hey, man, you're going to stay right there. We're going to stay right here. We're yeah. all going to be happy. And and to implement uh, like disarmament and inspection of yeah. weapons facilities. Which is another important thing. Yeah, for sure. Right? That will come back later. <laughs> yeah, that will come back uh, in large importance later. Yeah. But now, also importantly, also did occasionally use military strikes if Iraq violated UN resolutions or uh, inhibited arms inspections. So, yeah. like, it's not like we're not militarily present. And if we know anything about the history of airstrikes, like, 
they can be really harmful and they can have the unintended consequence of radicalizing people. Yeah. As Michael did mention, he did at some points attempt to hinder some of the uh, international weapons inspections, which did end up stoking some fears. But Mm -hmm. when those inspections resumed after 2003, the inspectors came back. The inspectors from the UN came back. And by the way, this was months before the invasion of Iraq by George W. Bush and said, there are no WMDs. There are no weapons of mass destruction. Yep. And Bush comes out and says, I don't believe that. I don't trust that. And then in March of 2003, he invades Iraq. Yeah. Now, the initial invasion of Iraq seemingly was a complete success, at least from the from the outside. From an yeah. outside's perspective, it was a complete success, which makes sense because, like, we had been economically, militarily, like, hamstringing Iraq for a long time, which I think is important to note because this kind of leads to another theme that runs throughout these segments. Like, we talked about it when we talked about Cuba. Uh, we talked about it when we talked about Chile. Um, during that period, Hussein exploited the situation of being sanctioned, of having oh, yeah. domestic, like having inter, you know a foreign power intervening domestically, of having sanctions on the com- country and economic strife to bolster his control and and popularity domestically, and to help like build the case against the U.S. and and the U.N. and so like. It's a common tactic that when you have a foreign power, you know, influencing you, controlling you, having like hurting your economy, it is a very easy thing to for the government in power to use that to maintain their power domestically. Yeah. And we see it again and again. It's it's it'd be interesting to see what like Putin's popularity does while we're sanctioning Russia. Yeah. So it's really important that we recognize that that is a direct consequence, like the emboldening of the people on the ground and the growth of anti-U.S. sentiment there. One makes perfect sense, right? Like it's like it's it's not, you know, that like they should that like that's necessarily the, the most reasonable outcome. But it's like a pretty easy thing for the government to exploit from a messaging perspective. So it makes sense why they would like start to have that anti whoever the oppressor sentiment is. And two, it's like a pretty natural consequence of that activity. Yeah. So the actual, the initial invasion lasted about 500 hours and they were able to, the United States uh, along with um, some allies from Britain and uh, Australia launched a ground invasion an aerial invasion, and pretty quickly marched into Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And the and George W. Bush famously declared, mission accomplished. Yeah. But then, of course, you have the, now what? Because <laughs> after you have gone into a country and completely destabilized it by overthrowing the government... There's going to be a vacuum of power. Yeah. There's also going to be uh, anti that invading force sentiment. Yep. 
because you they haven't solved any force. of the problems and you in haven't the country solved any of the problems <laughs> that led to all of the crap in the first place yeah so like yeah. they attempted to create popular elections a few times and ended up failing miserably at one point yeah. uh general jay garner tried to was sent to baghdad in order to try to organize elections uh for a government and that failed miserably yep um then there was uh, another provisional government that was attempted to be created by uh the former uh former ambassador um l paul bremer um but then he ended up basically like issuing orders from the the coalition forces which would disband the the bath party yep um which ended up just dissolving the entire iraqi government so that failed Mm -hmm. miserably and without and without like a police force like a military like the u.s forces were not adequately like running the country in the meantime and so there was like a wave of violence and lawlessness and destabilization after the fall of the hussein regime yeah, there were Sunni rebels that were originally part of the Hussein regime. There were uh, Shiite rebels, um, like the ones from from Iran, um, mm-hmm. and there were also just like non Iraqis uh, that were like uh, Islamic yeah. extremists that were just around the Middle East and were like, "Hey, there are United States troops in yeah. in Iraq. Let's go blow them up." Yep, which developed into this like multi-pronged guerrilla warfare insurgency which is what most of us having grown up through the 2000s remember about the war in iraq yeah yeah so a bunch of different failed attempts at creating uh, a government um then after taking office in 2009 uh, obama started to gradually terminate the u.s military presence after bush had exacerbated it um yeah towards yeah. the end of his presidency yeah like after so like things were going really bad with this insurgency right like like i shouldn't laugh it's terrible um yeah. like after like mission accomplished in 2003 insurgents killed more u.s soldiers just in 2003 than the total number of u.s soldiers that died during the initial invasion and then in the following years like thousands of service members would be killed in Iraq. And when when we, he was getting bipartisan pressure to pull out of Iraq, as Nathan mentioned, toward the end of his presidency, he resolved to escalate and reform the military mission. And, and he increased, in, in a move called the surge, he increased the number of GIs in Iraq from, from, by 40,000 soldiers, from 120,000 to 160,000. And he ordered them to... Uh, reform their operations by using overwhelming firepower. So just like trying to end his presidency without just a burning like pile of shit. <laughs> yeah. By just like militarily, like just trying to dominate the whole region. Yeah. And then Obama ends the military mission and then ISIS starts to become um, a threat in the Middle East. And then Obama sends people back in. Yeah. Because historically, that's just always been a good idea. Just just yeah. throw more troops at it. All right. Yeah. Between 2003 and 2011, 100,000 Iraqis were killed and 2 million people were displaced. It 
its infrastructure, its financial system, its government completely destroyed. Yeah. The total death count to today, um, and th- this, this is an estimate, the total death count today, according to Iraq body count, for just civilian deaths, and this is this is from violence, is um, it, it, the estimate ranges from 186,201 to 209,422. The total violent deaths, including combatants, is 288,000 people. 288,000 people are dead as a result of an illegal offensive war that we entered under false pretenses, under straight up lies, some of which we like some of which were reinforced through torture. All right. Some of which some of some of the lies, the evidence for those lies came from torture. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is one of the greatest war crimes in the in in recent history yeah. the fact that like the entire bush administration is not behind bars right now is a miscarriage of justice yeah and even before the iraq war at least the the second iraq war even before that we had a long history of fucking up Iraq. Yeah. And we still have troops in Iraq. Yeah. So, and that long history is for the same shit that we fucked up so many other countries. And this, and the quiet part of all of this is that it's not about democracy and it's not about human rights and it's not about suffering or any of that. It's about U S economic interests in a region and them being mean to us. So Iraq, sorry we fucked up your country. So now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, our Ass Hat this week is Louisiana Senator Bill Casty. Billy Cass, come on down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy. always always like creating those names man he is okay i i just gotta say sometimes we i i feel like we do have to reach a little bit in order to have an ass hat every week like i mean i think that all of the ass hats that we've had have had like are, are not good people or at least have have done or said things that were just shit but sometimes i feel like um some some of the ones that we've done have been kind of afterthoughts. This right here, though, this is prime chef chef's kiss ass hattery. So, Michael, what did Billy Cass do? So he was asked about um, a really really sad and terrible statistic about Louisiana, specifically that Louisiana ranks forty seventh in the nation for maternal mortality. So in responding to this question, he goes, about a third of our population is African-American. African-Americans have a higher incidence of maternal mortality. So if you correct our population for race, we're, we're not as much of an outlier as it would be otherwise. 
fuck? You think that might be a fucking problem? The fact that the fact that African American women have a higher infant mortality rate? You, yeah. You think that might be a fucking problem, bro? Yeah. Jesus. Like what? You, and also to word it like that, you correct it for race? Correct. For correct ra- it like, for race? What the? What are you fuck? talking about? As long as you don't count the people who are systemically killed at higher rates, then, you know, it's fine. As a direct result of my fucking policies. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, man. So, so he goes on Jesus. to say, now, I say that not to minimize the issue, but to focus the issue as to where it would be. For whatever reason, people of color have a higher incidence of paternal mortality. <laughs> For whatever reason. For whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, For whatever reason. <laughs> a, uh, a, a professor from Harvard's uh, public health school, uh, school of public health, responded, uh, not, not directly, but in, in a comment later, quote, it's no mystery why maternal mortality rates are so high among black women. They are high because of the devastating impacts of structural racism and individual bias. So... Yeah. Yeah. God. I can't believe he's saying, you know what's better than higher than being 47th out of 50 states in total maternal mortality? You know what's better than that? You know what's makes that more palatable? Yeah. And is that being what normal, drives up what drives you know, up our total average of maternal mortality is that a minority of people die at disproportionate rates. It's not like we're talking about like, oh, well 75% die at higher rates. No, it's a minority of people in the state, but they die at disproportionate rates. They are driving up the entire average to be the worst in the nation, which means for that people, by definition, for that group, it has to be even worse. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you're telling on yourself, dude. Yeah. You're completely telling on yourself. You're saying, basically, that you don't count them as regular people. You, You don't count them... When you think of Louisianans... For you, it's you got Louisianans and then you got Black Louisianans. Yep. Yeah. Is, it, is that how you would say it? Louisianans, Louis, Louisians. I think Louisians. I don't Louisans. know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that's the thing. Maybe I don't know about this particular belief for this guy, but maybe he's one of those white supremacists who believes in great replacement. In which case, disproportionate deaths among Black mothers is not a problem, but a fucking solution. So anyway, congratulations to Bill, Senator Bill Cassidy for being our Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So for our last segment tonight, we are talking about physician-assisted suicide in the U.S. Kind of have a conversation about, like, what are the arguments for and against it, and do we think it makes sense? Yeah. So as it stands... Um, 10 states, as well as D.C., legally have physician-assisted suicide. And uh, 40 states consider physician-assisted suicide to be illegal. So, Mm. to be clear, let's talk about what physician-assisted suicide is. So, physician-assisted suicide happens usually when somebody has some type of chronic disease that they have no chance of recovering from. Yeah. And... Instead of continuing to to live and suffer for, you know, 
a few more months or potentially even years, yeah. they decide that they want to go out on their own terms. All right. Mm -hmm. So a physician assists them um, in basically passing on. Yeah. All right. Now, I think that there are definitely a lot of emotions that are brought up when it comes mm -hmm. to conversations surrounding physician-assisted suicide. It's definitely been created as a bit of a boogeyman yeah. by the right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think a huge part of that is because in a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian belief, um, someone who commits the sin of suicide is damned to hell. Yeah. Now, as somebody who believes in the separation of church and state and who believes that laws should not be based solely on religion. I think that is a fucking terrible argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's also helpful to like parse out the cases because I think it's easy when you have a conversation like this to, uh, whatever your preexisting belief might be, whatever your opinion might be, you'll select, not you specifically, but one would select the example that would be most advantageous for supporting that position. Yeah. You know, so like if you're against physician assisted suicide, you'd be like, well, like why would someone, why would we allow someone who, you know, isn't fully mentally aware to decide to, you know, commit suicide or like, why would we, uh, you know, allow someone who's like perfectly healthy, but in pain to commit to like do suicide or whatever. So like, and on the other side, you might say like, well, of course we would allow someone who you know, is in chronic pain, has merely a day or two to live to just pass peacefully. Um, so like, it's probably worth like parsing out like the kind of the different requirements and things. So like in a number of states, for example, you're required to have a terminal illness with a prognosis of six months or less to live, which yeah. is like, you know, a re could be like considered a reasonable guardrail. There's also like a few different like ways that this can happen. Like, you know, there's like euthanasia where a doctor actually like administers a lethal dose of something. And then there's like assisted suicide where the doctor provides a method and like kind of instruction. There's also just withdrawal of treatment in cases where people are dependent on life support. Um, and then in like somewhat of a less controversial, but I think related example, there's like a do not resuscitate order which is like similar to withdrawing treatment, which and is kind of like in some ways a uh, something that kind of blurs the line a little bit, but one that I think most of us would accept without question as being like a pretty reasonable thing. Yeah. And there are safeguards in a lot of these laws to make sure that it's not just somebody who is mentally incapable of making that decision. The physician yeah. has to declare that they have the mental capacity to make that choice for themselves. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of states, like courts have to verify that as well like it's not just up yeah. to the physician yeah and also there are safeguards in in place for a lot of them about it not being because of age and it not being because of disability mm -hmm. which that one's pretty important for me because that i mean if we're allowing someone to do physician assisted suicide because of a disability that's basically just self-eugenics yeah yeah so the one argument that i've heard that does actually give me a little bit of pause is the fact that a person could potentially fall under the criteria of having a terminal illness, having the mental ability to be able to decide, all right, well, I don't want to 
I don't want to live through the rest of this. A person might fulfill the criteria, but the reason why they make the decision to terminate their life early through physician-assisted suicide is because of being a financial burden on their family. Yeah. And in a country like the United States that doesn't have a single-payer system in which medical bankruptcy is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, where almost 50% of Americans have cited lack of the ability to a, a lack of funding as a reason to have gone without healthcare at one point in their life. That does give me a little bit of a pause hmm. because I feel like there can be there, there that incentivizes some people to make that decision, not because they actually want to die, but just because they don't want to be a financial burden. Yeah. Now yeah. that's not enough for me to say that I'm, I think that, we shouldn't have it at all, but I, I think that that needs to be part of the conversation too. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Cause like, I think that falls under like a category of arguments that is a little bit of a sticky area when it comes to like people's freedom about like, f like autonomous, like freedom to make rational choices for themselves yeah because you could make a similar argument about like well you know about just generally about like is it ever rational to pick suicide yeah. like is it ever because like in the say there's a case of like a terminal illness it's like a few years out or something like that and like the and say say it's an example of like a few years out it's not you know particularly painful and the pain can be managed with reasonable uh, medications and all that stuff but someone still wants physician-assisted suicide and like there's an argument that you could pretty easily make that like that's not a good choice it's not a rational yeah. reasonable choice and like um, the a person like wouldn't make that choice except if they were feeling like except if their feelings were that they you know wanted to pass and like they were like a depressed or something like that which is a transient state of mind and so like should we really allow people to make decisions in a particularly vulnerable part of their life that are not rational that are dependent on a transient state of mind, but the decision is final. There's no, it's irrevocable. And yeah. like set it up like that. And it's like, man, like maybe we shouldn't, if we start incorporating kind of like rather than, rather than side constraints on what qualifies, we start incorporating judgment about people's own choices, about whether it's reasonable, whether they are making the right choice for themselves. Yeah. You know, and also another thing that I just that I just thought of, and I I I don't have specifics in front of me. There might be safeguards in some of these states to prevent this, but one yeah. thought that I just had was, you know, in most cases when it comes to administering some type of health care or refusing to administer some type of health care because of personal moral convictions, mm. like most of the time, I would say, well, 
get over it. Like you, you don't want to, you don't want to treat a trans person because according to your religion, trans people shouldn't be considered people. Yeah. Get over it. Get over like, it. Like yeah. that's, that should not be, that should not be a part of, um, like if that is, if that's how you think you shouldn't be a doctor, yeah. but honestly, when it comes to this hmm. and again, I, I don't know exactly how this works in the specific States. Cause I mean, yeah. this isn't a policy deep dive. This is more of just a, philosophical conversation about whether we think it's you know in principle correct or not mm -hmm. so yeah. take take this with a grain of salt um maybe we'll do a policy deep dive at some point but that's not what this is um could there be a situation in which you know there you can't find a hospital because yeah. there's no doctor that says like i'm willing to do this yeah I mean, and is it reasonable to like? Is it yeah, require is it a doctor to, require to administer? Yeah, you know, that kind of. Because I mean, if care. I mean, if I was a doctor, like, look, look, I on principle, I agree with that being an option, but I, I can tell you, if I was a doctor, I would, I'd not be comfortable with doing that. Yeah, I, I, I think, would not be comfortable with administering physician-assisted suicide if I was a doctor. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think like. Going back to my point earlier, I think like it would be possible, I think, to set up a scenario in which it would be reasonable with like reasonable constraints that yeah. it should be allowed. Like if you, you know, I think the six month or so prognosis to live is like a reasonable thing. Maybe like, I don't know if you can really measure pain that effectively, but like if someone's in clearly chronic pain like that makes total sense yeah do not resuscitate makes total sense yeah <clears throat> you know like withholding um at like a certain point like you know withholding uh treatment at because of like a an, you know a previously established order or something like that like that makes total sense um and so like i think you could probably construct it so that it like accounts for the right stuff. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you could like get around the funding problem and the, I think you could probably exempt doctors from like having to provide it. Although like I imagine in the face of like extreme suffering, yeah. if the, if the move, if the, if the choice was, Hey, like, if you press your morphine button eight times instead of two times, yeah, you'll pass. Like, yeah, I mean, and 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 it looks like at least in California, what I was reading was that part of it was the patient needs to have the physical and mental ability to do it themselves. To do it themselves, interesting. So, so that 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 might in some ways alleviate some of those concerns. Yeah, but yeah, I just like. I mean, most of the time when it comes to moral or religious convictions against certain types of treatment, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm on the side of like, well, get over it. You're a doctor. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't care. But for something like this, I mean, I, <sighs> yeah, I get it. It's different, you know? Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Ultimately so, though, like, I think it's worth having some kind of like policy enabling this in some cases, just because- yeah. Absolutely. I think it's such a it's such an important part of like end of life dignity. Yeah. Uh and and just like minimizing 
like suffering as much as possible, you yeah. know? Like if yeah. you truly have nothing to look forward to and all you have is pain to experience, like yeah. in that case, it seems like a perfectly rational choice. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I mean, I would say that it would be a lot easier for me to just blanketly say yes if we did live in a Medicare for all system. But even without that, at the end of the day, I do think that there is a certain level of personal freedom that has to be involved here. So as long yeah. as you have a significant amount of safeguards to prevent just like somebody, you know, somebody doing it who is not necessarily, who ne does not necessarily fall under the category of, um, you know, chronic pain and only a, only a little bit of time to live. Mm-hmm. I think that ultimately this should be something that every state should have at least some iteration of. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And maybe it's paired with some kind of counseling requirement or something like that, where it's like, let's do a psych psychological evaluation to like, make sure that, you know, to like provide you with some reasonable thoughts and, and help address any mental health concerns that might be leading to decision that you might not make if you didn't have those mental health challenges, you know, yeah clinical depression or something that occurs as a result of being bedridden or something like that. And now we will end our episode as we did last week, facing another mass shooting with a moment of silence. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.